Good morning, church. As you can tell by my shirt, we are coming to you live from Hawaii. Woo! Pastor should not lie. That's not true. <coughs> we are live from Salt Lake City, Utah. Woo! And we have the greatest crowd here in the morning. So if you're not here, you're just simply missing out. Sorry about that. So uh, we are back in our study of the uh, 12 apostles after Easter and Palm Sunday. Um, we're going to be starting off in Luke chapter 6. If you need a Bible, there's some back behind Tara. I always feel that it's important that you follow along with me in Scripture to make sure that I am teaching and preaching God's Word in context and not taking it out of context. So it's it's good that we dig into the Word of God and, and share. So um, we are in our next series looking at the fifth apostle that Jesus called. That is he, he came on the scene about age 30. He started his public ministry. Uh, he showed up at John the Baptist as John the Baptist was teaching about the coming Messiah. And as Jesus comes on the scene, John points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And John sent his disciples to follow Jesus. And Jesus has all these disciples. And somewhere in the first year of his ministry, he goes up, and like he often did, and he goes up to a place and he prays. And he seeks his father's advice. And he picks out 12 men out of all the disciples that were following him. And he makes them apostles. And he radically, over the next two years, changes their life uh, to be the, the, the deliverers, the foundation of the church. The interesting thing about these men, as we've been looking at, is they're just ordinary, common men. There's nothing special about them. They're not, they're not sophisticated. They're not super educated. They're not in the political scene. They're not in the church scene with the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the Sadducees. They're just basic working class men. Nothing special about them, just ordinary. But God takes these ordinary men and he transforms them to do something extraordinary, to literally change the world as we know it today. And if you don't believe me, have you ever heard of the apostles? Yeah. And how many years has it been since the apostles were chosen? Some 2,000 years, right? God chose these men to bring forth the gospel message, become the foundation of the church as we know it, and to lead people to Jesus the Christ. That the Messiah, the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament had come in Jesus, and they seek to tell people about him. To reunite, once again, creator and creation. Because of that sin that had separated us, they bring the gospel message of grace and salvation, salvation only through Jesus Christ and not of our own doings, that we can once again be reunited with God in holiness and fellowship. So, as we're digging into this, you may be asking yourself the question, why study the apostles? I mean, there are 12 guys came on the scene, big deal, right? Why study the apostles? Well, I'll give you my take on it. First and foremost, because they're in the Bible, right? The Bible is the holy inspired word of God. And in my opinion only, if God puts something in the Bible, then there's something for us to glean from that, something for us to learn from that, that God says, hey, this is important, right? I put this in here for you to help you and to bless you. The amazing thing about the apostles that we talked about a little bit last week is when God puts their stories in the Bible, he doesn't pull any punches, right? We read about the failures of the apostles, right? Now, if I was writing a book about myself, <laughs> I wouldn't tell you about my failures. I'd tell you about all my successes, maybe exaggerate a little bit, right? I don't want, well, maybe a lot. Okay, my wife's in the audience, I gotta be good. 
we don't want people to know our mistakes all the time, right? But God clearly puts the mistakes and the failures and the flaws, the corrections of the apostles in the Word of God for us to read about. I mean, our whole life story is pretty much laid before us to see as an open book. But he also puts their successes in there. And I think that's important for us because I know all of you in here except me are perfect, right? You've never messed up. You've never had a flaw, a failure, made a bad decision, you know, had body odor, done any of that stuff, right? You've always been perfect. Well, the reality is we're a lot like the apostles. We have struggles. We have failures. We have successes. And we see that God works in their lives to change them. The second thing that is so important about the apostles is that in this two-year period, we see a tremendous transformation of their lives. That They go from just being kind of common, rough-around-the-edges kind of guys to being ministers and preachers and evangelists. From going to kind of being self-seeking, like, you know, kind of entitled, it's all about me, what do I get out of this thing called Christianity, how do I get something to succeed in this, to being servants of men and women. That's a radical change. We tend to be a selfish people. I mean, Christy prayed that in a prayer, right? We tend to want things that benefit and bless us, right? God takes the lives of these 12 men, and he changes them from where they're arguing over who's going to be first and second in the kingdom of heaven to being men who go out and serve others and say that the best way that I can serve God is by serving others, who put others before themselves who hear the words of God that says love covers a multitude of sins that go out to people that are failed, that are sinful, that are hurting, that don't deserve the message of God. And they love them. And they see them as God sees them. And they see them as hurting men and women that need to hear the gospel message of love. And the third thing it's important to study these, these 12 men is this. They are literally the foundation of the church. We read in the book of Revelation that there are 12 pillars in the New Jerusalem, and on those pillars, the bottom of the pillars, are the names of the 12 apostles. And that's pretty significant, because in a weird, warped way, we've got to realize that when we go to heaven, guess who we're going to meet? We're going to meet these guys, right? And God used them to form the church as we know it. So it's important to understand these men, because God has so much to share to us through these men. Now, we've already read that Jesus went off and he prayed for these men, right? He prayed for God the Father, his Father, to speak to him, to pick out the 12 men that he would mentor and train for some two years. So what we need to do is realize this as we're getting into our study once again. We've often seen if you go into a Catholic church or, you know, something like that, or you see these pictures of the, of the apostles, they're in the stained glass, right? And they all look so clean cut and so nice and, and very good. But we've got to re remember... Again, these were common men. Four plus of them were just fishermen. They would get up early in the morning. They would get their boat. They would go out with just a little bit on. They would catch fish. Anybody ever fish in here? What do you smell like when you come back? You smell like fish, and everybody loves you, right? I mean, it's just like you... Can you imagine them being in the boat and remember how they fished? They would use nets, right? So they'd cast these nets out. They'd catch the fish. They'd haul them in over the boat by hand. And what do fish do when they're in the net? They're flopping around, right? They're putting fish scent everywhere. So these guys, when they came back to the shore, because they put the fish in the boat where they were, probably didn't smell very good. They were average, ordinary men, right? They had jobs that 
weren't the prettiest of jobs. They were not stained glass people. They were ordinary people. Working class, flawed around the edges, a little rough. These are the men that God chose, which I think is encouraging to us. Because I read this, that if in two years God can transform these 12 men, what do you think God can do with us with two, five, 10, 30 years? He can do that amazing transformation in our lives as well. These men sought the Lord with all their heart. They were looking for God. And their life became literally a sacrifice to God after meeting Jesus for those two years. We also want to remember that when Jesus chose these 12 men, he chose 12 specifically. Do you remember why? Well, there were the 12 nations of Israel, right? What God was saying with these 12 men is he brought them in and he trained them and he sent them out to minister. He was looking at the nation of Israel that had fallen away from God. They had backslidden. They had religion. They didn't have Christianity. They didn't trust and believe in God. They had a religion. You know what you do in religion? You have a bunch of rules, right? And you gotta follow the rules. You have a bunch of laws. And by golly, if you don't keep the rules and the laws, well, bad shame on you, right? Have you ever gone into a religious place and heard someone speaking and you just felt kind of shamed and guilty and beaten down? Because, well, you have sinned. Shame on you. Where's the love? Where's the love of Jesus Christ that says love covers a multitude of sins? Where's the grace, God's riches at Christ's expense? Where's the salvation and the forgiveness? You see, the nations of Israel had become religious. The Bible even says that they placed burdens upon men's back that were too heavy to carry. You know, we talk about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right? Anybody in here ever be able to keep all Ten Commandments? Even for a little bit? Nobody has, because you can't. God set the standard so high, you can't keep them. And the reason God did that was to show us that we can't be good enough within ourselves, that we need a Savior, someone beyond us, that can forgive us our sins and make us right with God once again. The, kin, the Ten Commandments, the laws are there to show us that we fail. And that God says, I know you'll fail, but I can heal you. I can save you. I can take that burden of sin off your back. So we see the nation of Israel becoming religious. In fact, the nation of Israel had not only the Ten Commandments, they had some 612 other rules that you had to follow. Now, I don't know if you know about me, but I have trouble remembering 10. Can you imagine having to go through your life all day as a spiritual person, remembering some 622 laws and rules that you had to keep and not do? That's crazy. I mean, your mind is all worried about, oh my gosh, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna mess up, I'm gonna do something wrong. There's 622 things I gotta keep track of. It's nuts. And that's where Jesus comes on the scene with the 12 apostles, not only to be the bearers of the gospel, but to make a, a statement, a spiritual statement in the nation of Israel that Israel, you have fallen away from me. And not only do you need a little rework, we need something brand new to bring in the message of God. Because Israel, you have forgotten 
God's love. You have forgotten God's message, which is crazy because you look back in the Old Testament of what God did. He brought the entire nation of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, right? He opened up the sea, and they walked through, and their enemies were destroyed behind them. He led them through the desert for some 40 years, and he provided food and water, and nothing wore out. God did all these things for this nation, and they forgot. And so God brings in the 12 apostles to have a spiritual awakening in the land to say, hey, let's get away from rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, and let's talk about the grace and the love, the holiness of God. Let's remember, as the book of Revelation calls Jesus, our first love, and not forget him. Because Christianity is about a relationship. You'll never get to heaven by being a goody-two-shoes. You'll only get to heaven by having salvation through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and realizing that it's he that saves you. It's he that takes the sin off of your life, past, present, and future, wipes your slate clean, and gives you a new chance at life. You know how often? Well, once in salvation, of course, John, right? No, every single day. Every day you and I wake up, we have a new chance to draw closer to God, a new chance to realize God's presence more in our life, a new chance to realize we are a forgiven people. And not only are we forgiven, God gives us a purpose in life. That's amazing. How many people are out reading self-help books about, what do I do with my life? When I grow up, what does God want me to be? What's the purpose? I mean, I remember in junior high, they're asking us, hey, when you grow up, what do you want to be? I'm like, I don't know. I'm still in junior high, right? Well, I'm 59 years old. I still don't quite know, right? I'm still trying to figure it out. God says, when you come to me in salvation, not only do I forgive you, I give you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And I give you abundant life. I give you my blessings, I give you spiritual gifts, and then I give you a purpose. Oh, how cool it is to have a purpose. You ever be in a crowd of people and everyone has a job to do except you and you're the only one sitting there going, oh, what do I do? I guess I'll just stand here and look pretty, right? When you have a purpose, you have a meaning in your life. You have importance, you have value. And so when God gives us that purpose, plus forgiveness. It's amazing. And so the 12 apostles come into the nation of Israel to say, hey, get away from religion. Get away from rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and have to's and cannots. Don't let your mind focus on that. But God tells us in the New Testament, let your mind dwell on what is good and lovely and pure and holy and righteous. God says, quit thinking about the rules. That's just a downer, right? Think about the things that are good, the things that God has blessed you with. And God uses these 12 men to usher in this message, not only to the nation of Israel, but throughout history from that point to where we are today. So if you're here and you've been had those experiences where you've been weighed down by guilt because you weren't good enough, you've been left out because you felt you had no purpose, You've gone to places where it says, you have to do this and this and this to be holy and righteous. You have to dress like this. You have to walk and talk like this. Let's get rid of that right now. Because that's not what God's about. God's about desiring to be with you. Because he wants you. He loves you. 
God's about saying, I want us to, as the old hymn says, to walk and talk together, to spend time together. God says, I want you to dwell on things which are good and beautiful and lovely. So enjoy what God has given us through these 12 apostles as they ushered in this new message, the trueness of God's love for us. These 12 apostles came on the scene and basically told the religious leaders that they were wrong. Now, how popular do you think they were? Not very popular, because that's not a good message. And it bothered the religious leaders at the time, right? We know that all 12 apostles died a martyr's death, except for John the Baptist, who was, by the way, if you don't know, thrown in a pot of, or not John the Baptist, no, John the Apostle, thanks. My wife's keeping me on, on tab there. He was thrown in a pot of boiling oil and somehow lived, and he was left to die on the island of Patmos. And Judas, who went and hung himself because he betrayed Christ, all the other apostles were martyred for the sake of God. So following Jesus wasn't all rainbows and butterflies, was it? Sometimes following Christ is hard. Because we can't take the easy road and just go along with what everybody else says. We have to take a stand. And these men took a stand for Christ. They lived out what 1 Corinthians 1.29 says. It says, no one should boast before God. Our lives are to give God glory, right? Once God brings us salvation, it's to give God glory. 1 Corinthians 2.5 says this, Your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. These 12 apostles went out and ministered after Christ was crucified and rose again from the grave in the power of God. They had learned in that two years not to depend upon their own wisdom and their own strength and their own efforts, but to truly have faith and trust in God, and he would lead them the way he would have them to go. So you're, if you're with me, turn to Luke 6. We'll start there. Luke 6 is where Jesus goes and prays and calls the apostles again. And we've looked at this every Sunday that we've studied the apostles, but we want to go through it again to see what God does. So Luke 6, or chapter 6, verse 12 to 16. And it states this. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray. Isn't it cool that before Jesus always did something, he prayed? He sought his God the Father's advice. He did a little prep work. He didn't just wing it. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he also called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, who we'll study today, and Bartholomew. And Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right. We've already met James and John and Peter and Andrew, right? They were the first four fishermen that Jesus called. In essence, we call them kind of the first four clay pots that God began to use. And now we come to meet Philip. Philip, now this is really deep and theological, so I hope you're ready. Hold on to your spiritual seats because here it comes. Philip's name in Greek means, you ready? We know that John means beloved of God, right? We know that... That, that Peter's and all the other names meant something special. Do you know what Philip's name meant in the Greek? Lover of horses. Now that's deep, isn't it? You came to church just to hear that today. Philip's name meant lover of horses. And I say that just because Philip was not Greek 
but that was his Greek name. That's the name that we read in the New Testament because it's written in Greek. We read Philip. And we know that God gives people names because sometimes they often mean important things. But with Philip, it's kind of a little sense of humor because his name means lover of horses. Woo, that's deep and spiritual, right? We don't know what Philip's Jewish name was. The Bible never tells us. But we do know that he had a Jewish name. But I don't know. I think just personally for grins and, grins and giggles, God puts a little humor in the Bible if you catch it right. you know. So here we have Philip, the lover of horses. We know that he was Jewish. We don't know what his Jewish name was. We know that he lived in Bethsaida. Uh, he grew up in the same town as Peter and Andrew and James and John. So I kind of get this image that when Jesus is first calling the disciples or the apostles, he goes out and he meets them with John the Baptist. And then he comes and he calls them about a year later. And he goes into this little town and he looks and he finds five guys who are out fishing and just living life and seeking the Messiah. And he says, they'll do they'll do. I think as God calls us, he looks at us and he sees us sometimes in our flawed state, a little mistakes, a little, you know, struggling through life. And he says, hey, that want to do, that want to do, that want to do. Because God knows that it's not, again, us that can do the miracle that become, that can become so holy. It's God that does the miracle in us. Somebody said, all that God really needs is our availability. And that'd be enough. These men made themselves available. When Jesus said, come and follow me, do you remember what they did in the New Testament? They said, oh, sure, Lord, give us about a week and we'll be there, right? Uh, we got to go clean house. I got to check with the wife. I got to do this. When Jesus said, follow me, they literally got up from their occupation. They walked away from everything they knew and they followed Christ. They made themselves available. So next application for us, you can't read the Bible without practical application, right? That's what it's about. When Jesus gives the example of the 12 apostles and he comes and he says, hey, come and follow me. Quick test here. How long does it take him to follow Jesus? About 30 seconds, right? When God comes to you and says, you follow me, how long should it take you and I to drop things and follow Jesus? About 30 seconds. But what runs through our mind? Oh, I've got to take care of this. If you're my wife, it's like, well, I got to take care of the chickens. I got to take care of the dogs. I got to clean the house because somebody might stop by while I'm gone. I got to do all this stuff. And Jesus says, that's not important. What's important is that you have your mind on heavenly things. And the stuff that you have that you're walking away from compared to what you'll have in heaven and salvation is nothing. Nothing. The Bible even says that all of our good works that we can muster up are like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. God told the apostles one time within that two-year ministry when they're like, Lord, we've left everything for you. And he's like, you've left nothing that I can't not only replace and give you more of. But the stuff that you've left, I'm going to give you stuff that's really important. So when Jesus comes and he's ministering and speaking and seeking you and I, and he says, you come and follow me. How long should it take us to react? About that long, right? Practical application. Back to Philip. We know Philip was also a, a fisherman because he was hanging around with the first four apostles that they were fishermen. Um, and later on in, in John chapter 21, after 
Jesus has ascended, and the apostles are struggling a little bit in the upper room. Peter pipes up and he says, hey, we don't know what to do right now. We're kind of confused. Let's go fishing. Philip goes fishing with him, so obviously he knew how to do it. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, says nothing about Philip. Mark says nothing about Philip. Luke says nothing about Philip, but thank God for John because John says something about Philip. So we get to know him just a little bit. We've studied the first four apostles. They were a little bold, a little brash, right? Philip's a completely different person. He's, a, he's not like the first four apostles that we've met. So to find out about Philip, let's jump into John chapter 1. You can follow along with me there, John chapter 1. We first read these exciting words in John 1, 43. The next day. Well, that just rocks your spiritual world, doesn't it? The next day. So what are we talking about? It was the day after that Jesus had called Peter and Andrew to come and follow him. He goes back and he calls Philip. It says, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found Philip. Do you read those words? Now, those words are impacting. He found Philip. In other words, Jesus, as the Son of God, found Philip. Well, Philip wasn't lost, but he, Jesus was looking for a man that he could find. Now, you ever have that question about what theologians throw around where it's like, what's the difference between sovereign election and human choice? You ever question that where it's like, well, did God just choose us? But no, we have the freedom to choose right and wrong. You ever have that struggle you hear about in theology and in church sometimes? Well, Philip is a great example of both because we just read that it says that Jesus found Philip, right? But we'll go on and read as Philip is running and he takes this from this point on and Philip goes off once Jesus finds him and he comes to salvation, Philip will go off and he will find Nathanael. And he'll say, Nathanael, come, I have found the Lord. Now, do you see the, the thing in there that I'm talking about between sovereign election from God choosing us and free will where we choose God? The Bible tells us in John 1 that Jesus found Philip, just as God finds and seeks us out. But in Philip's mind, what does he tell Nathanael? Hey, I found the Lord. You see, God puts us in here so we can understand that we may think we find God, but the reality is it is God who first seeks us out. And what that means is this. Nobody, even here today, is here by accident. Because God has brought us to this place to speak and minister to us intently and on purpose. It is God who finds us and directs our path. Now, sometimes we get the spiritual thing like, hey, I came to church and I found God. Well, again, God was never lost. He was actually looking for you. And he brings us to those places intently and on purpose to minister to us. We are never anywhere by accident in God's kingdom. So Philip comes on the scene and he has this thing where he says, we found God. And Nathaniel says, what are you talking about? He says, I'm talking about the one of whom the Old Testament talks about of Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Well, this tells us something important about Philip. If Philip is telling Nathaniel about Moses and the law and what the prophets wrote, what do you think Philip had been studying in his life, or at least the last couple years? 
the Old Testament. He was digging in the Word of God at the time. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They just had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He was digging in the Word of God as it was at that time to find the Messiah. This tells us actually a lot about Philip. Philip was a seeker of God. He was Jewish, but he wasn't aligning himself with the Jewish religion, with the rules and regulations. He was Jewish, but he was seeking the coming of the Messiah. He wanted to know the one true God. He didn't want to be caught up in rules and regulations. He knew that God was more than that. So Philip had been seeking God. And that speaks to something in our lives too, another practical application. Here's the question. Are you seeking God? Or do you come to church like Wasatch just to hear the great music this morning? To hear the awesome pastor speak? To have the wonderful chocolate donuts? What do you come to church for? We should be coming to seek the Lord. Say, God, here I am. I'm available. If you call me, I'll come, I'll be there, and I'll do it immediately. And then, Lord, I know when I'm there, you'll speak me. You'll speak to me. You'll minister to me. Because the Bible clearly tells us, if you seek, now here's a hard theological test. Are you ready? Didn't know you are going to have a test today, right? If you seek the Lord, you know what? What's the Bible say you'll do? You'll find him. If you are searching for God, God will come to your presence where you are and reveal himself to you and minister to you. So hopefully today in practical application as we're looking at this life of Philip, that he was seeking the Lord and God found him through Jesus and brought him to salvation, that hopefully you and I are here today seeking God and saying, God, what do you have to say to me today? How can you minister to me today? How can you change me more into your likeness? God, I've got wounds and hurts that are painful. I need healed. I've got a history that's just not so pretty because I've done some things. I need that forgiven. God, I'm scared about the future. I don't know what's going to happen. I need you to go before me and give me wisdom and discernment for the future. But the kicker is you got to be available like Philip. And like Philip, you got to be what? Seeking God. Seeking God. What else do we know about Philip? Well, turn over to John chapter 6. John 6. Again, there's not a lot in the Bible about Philip, but we have a little bit thanks to John. John 6 is that great scene again where we've talked about it a couple times. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So here's all these people following Jesus. Jesus goes out. They're following him. They want to hear his message. He's speaking something new to them that they have never heard before, nothing like in the synagogue before. He's speaking words that impact their hearts. So they're following them out onto this hill to hear his message. And the Bible talks about 5,000. Well, we know that were there only 5,000? There are probably about 20,000. Where do we get that? Because the Bible only focused on the men. So there were about 5,000 men. If they had a wife or girlfriend, well, that's 10,000, right? If they had a couple kids, well, now we're up to like 20,000. So here we are with the feeding of the 5,000 where they're out here. The, the apostles come to Jesus. They've been out there obviously all day long as the Bible infers. And the apostles come to Jesus and they're like, Lord, you need to send these people home because they're hungry and we don't have anything to feed them. John chapter 6, verse 5 says, And he lifted up his eyes to see a great multitude. So we're talking about some 20,000 
folks here. And if you read down from John 6, 5, Jesus speaks to Philip about how he's going to take care of them. And Philip says to Jesus, where are we going to buy bread that we may eat? What's this tell us about Philip? Well, a couple things. Maybe some of you can see yourself in Philip here. Jesus speaks to Philip to test him, as it says in verse 6. Jesus said this testing Philip, because Jesus already knew what Philip was going to do, but he says, how are you going to feed these people? And, and Philip comes up and he says, Lord, if we had 200 denarii, a denarii was a day's wages, if we had 200 days wages, how could we feed all these people? There's too many. So what's this tell us about Philip? He's been with Jesus. He's seen miracles, right? He sees Jesus do these crazy things, and yet here he is when Jesus says, Philip, how are you going to feed these people? And Philip's like, Lord, if we had 200 days wages, we couldn't feed them. Philip's a skeptic. Philip's a skeptic. Philip's problem is he's too caught up in the real world that he sees the problem instead of the solution. Philip looks at Jesus and he's like, Lord, we, we can't feed these people. We can't. This is impossible. This is crazy. So let me ask you something, practical application to get as a Christian. You come to salvation, you're in Christ, and now something happens in your life that is huge. How do you do in your faith? Do you look at it and cry out to God going, Lord, this is impossible. How can I overcome this? This is crazy. I can't get through this. I can't make this. This is too much. Well, then you can relate with Philip. You let the problem get in front of your faith in Christ. Now we know the end of the story, right? Do the people get fed? Yeah. Little boy comes up with a couple biscuits and some fish, and Jesus multiplies them. And in fact, after it's done, what's left over? Twelve baskets of bread, way more than they started with. Jesus knows they're going to get fed. But he speaks to Philip, and as it says in, in verse 6, Jesus asked Philip this to test him. Now, we all love tests, right? You go to school, you get tests. The thing you hope for is you get out of school so you don't have any tests, right? Then you go to work and you're tested all your life, right? That's how life works. Jesus tests us to make us see ourselves in the mirror of what we're really made of. If our faith was never tested, we'd never know where we really stand in the Lord, right? If our faith was never really tested, we'd never realize that, hey, I thought I've arrived, but I'm not quite there yet. I've got a ways to grow in God. That's what Jesus is doing with Philip. He's like, Philip, how are you going to feed these people? And Philip's like, Lord, I don't know. This is, we, 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 don't, we don't have enough to do this. We can relate with Philip, right? Those problems come in life. Something happens. We lose a relationship. We lose a friend. We lose a job. We have a failure. A tragedy strikes. And we're like, Lord, I can't do this. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to stress. I'm going to worry. I'm going to freak out. Well, that's not biblical, is it? The Bible says, be anxious. In other words, be stressed, be worried about nothing. You worry about tomorrow, what's going to happen? Stock market, life, whatever. What's the Bible say? Don't worry about tomorrow because today's got enough problems of its own. Right? 
Philip is stressing. He's the bean counter. He sees the material, the realistic world. He sees the problem. He doesn't see his faith in Jesus. What Jesus is actually doing here with Philip as he's testing him is he's giving Philip a glimpse of himself to see that he's not trusting in God at this point in his life. Now, this is crazy, because we always think, ooh, all oh, the 12 apostles, they were with Jesus. I mean, they had an inside loop on the thing, right? Philip's missing it, and he's with Jesus. Some Christians I've heard say, well, if I could have been like the apostles and been with Jesus for two years, why'd well, have magnificent faith too? Well, Philip doesn't. Philip is stressing, going, oh, we can't do this. There's no way there's too many people. The problem's too big. But Lord, I can worry. I can stress. I can be anxious. And God's going, ah. Wrong answer, Philip. Try again. How about our faith? When's the last time you stressed over something? You worried over something? Maybe it was this morning because you're worried whether I'm going to bring chocolate donuts or cake donuts. Right? Now that's ridiculous, but... Ken worries about that every Sunday when we show up with food, right? We are good stressors and worriers, right? I mean, some of us have PhDs in stress and worry. And yet when we come to the Bible, what's the Bible say? Don't do it. Have faith. God's big enough to handle this. I mean, seriously, we trust God in our salvation, but we don't trust him with the problems we have every day? Well, that's messed up, isn't it? We worry a lot. And God allows us to do that to say, hey, McFly, you got the wrong answer. You should be having faith in me and what I can do. And he tests Philip. Philip gives the wrong answer. And then you know what Jesus does just to drive the point home? He takes the kids biscuits and fish and he multiplies it and he feeds 20,000 people and there's 12 baskets of bread left over. How do you think Philip felt? Loser. You see, Philip struggled with just seeing what was in front of him. Philip struggled with lack of faith. So why in the world, as we're being introduced to Philip in this lack of faith guy, this worrywart, this practicalist, why in the world would God pick him to be an apostle? Same reason God picks you and me. Because he can, knows he can change our life from worry and stressing to being men and women of faith. He knows he can take our eyes off the practical things of the world that face us every single day, and he can make us heavenly minded. He can help us to see the world through the eyes of Christ and not the eyes that see all the problems and mistakes. I can relate with Philip because I tell you what, if I come into a situation, I can find the problem that fast. But I have a little trouble finding a solution. How about you? Can you see the, the fails, the, the flaws and things immediately when you're in a situation? Can you see when somebody does something like, oh, well, that's not going to go well. We're good at finding the problems we struggle with faith. And I think that's why God puts Philip in the Bible, because we can what? Relate with Philip really clearly, right? Next time you stress and worry, just say, ah, 
having a Philip moment. Bummer. Got to repent of that and trust in God, right? So God is growing Philip. Now we're to John 14. You see, Philip's just too practical for his own good. John 14, a little bit later on in John, Philip's been with Jesus a while. We've, Philip's seen the 20,000 people fed. Let's see how Philip does a little bit later. John 14, verse 6. Jesus is speaking to the apostles, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but me. And then Jesus goes on to say, If you had known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then right down below that in the Bible, Philip makes a statement. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one knows the Father but me. If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father, right? That's Jesus' statement. And Philip says, well, Lord, just show us the Father and it'll be enough. Oh, my gosh. Philip's not getting it, is he? Jesus says, I'm it. Philip's trying to seek God the Father and all this. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. It's a faith thing, right? Where is Philip? Well, Lord, just show us your dad. That'll be enough. It seems subtle, but it's not. Because Philip still is not getting it. Well, this is bad, but remember I told you God doesn't pull any punches. He puts the good and the bad in the Bible. What's good for us about this scene? Any of you been a Christian more than a week? More than a month? More than a year? Any of you have those moments, like three years into your faith, 15 years in your faith, where you still just don't get it? Well, you're having a Philip moment, right? Philip's been with Jesus at this point for quite a while. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And Philip's like, oh, that's great, Lord. Well, why don't you just introduce us to your dad in person and we'll be okay. It's a flyby over Philip's head. He's not getting it. Jesus speaks to Philip again in verse 10. Do you not believe I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? He's like, Philip, do you realize what you're saying? The words which I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father is abiding in me, and I do his work. And then he asked Philip, don't you believe in me? And then he goes on to say, believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and please believe on the accounts of the works. In other words, Jesus says, Philip, if you don't get it, just look at the things that we've done in the last couple of years. Look at the miracles that God the Father is working through me. If you are so practical that you think seeing is believing, then look at the things we've done. This is kind of crazy. I wouldn't pick Philip to be an apostle, knowing that he's this kind of guy. He sees the problems instead of solutions. I mean, the Bible is all about hope, right? Hope and assurance of a future. And Philip's kind of going, he's the guy that's going, how are we going to get there? We'll probably get lost. I mean, Siri may be wrong. Google Maps might not be right. What if we lose the internet? Philip's the skeptical kind of guy that just sees the problem. And in his whole transition of two years, God is stretching him and growing him to seeing a practical person to being a man of faith. Well, that's about all we see of Philip. 
Not a whole lot, is it? Except a guy that didn't get it, that worried and stressed and struggled with faith, and yet Jesus picked him to be an apostle, a bearer of the gospel, a foundation of the church. Well, how do we know what changed? Well, tradition says in church history that after Pentecost, Philip was an apostle, but after Pentecost, after they were all filled with the, with the Spirit, he went out and he preached and he taught the gospel and he was an evangelist. And we know in history that he was so devout that when he came before Rome later on in life and they asked him to recant of his faith, let's put this in perspective, Philip is a realist, right? Philip is a skeptic, Philip is a bean counter, Philip sees the problem, he's before the Roman government and they say, if you, well, what's the opposite if you don't? You're going to die, and it's probably going to be painful, right? So old Philip probably would have seen that and said, Oh, that's a bad thing. I just can't do that. That's going to hurt. That's going to be hard. After Philip finally gets it, he does not recant his faith. He stays whole and firm to his faith in Christ. And his blessing for doing that is he has had steel rods put through his hips and his ankles, and he's hung upside down until he dies. And as Philip is dying, he tells the people around him not to wrap him up in linen cloth. And that doesn't seem like much. It's like, so what? Big deal. He didn't want to be wrapped up when he was dead. He says that because Christ, when he was crucified, dead, and buried, was wrapped in linen cloth. And Philip says, I am not worthy to die like my Savior. So just bury me as is. So what do we see about this? What's the big deal about Philip? Philip is transformed from skeptic, from realist, from seeing the problem, to a man of faith. A man who no longer worries because his assurance is, Christ, is in Christ. A man who knows that God can do amazing things through him. So how about you and me this morning as we close? Are you the skeptic? Are you the problem seer? Are you the worry wart? God wants to take that from you and say, you don't need to worry. Remember the old Sunday school song? He's got the whole world, where? In his hands. And then it goes on and says, he's got you and me, brother, where? In his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. What God is trying to take us to is a point where we don't worry because we have faith, absolute faith in God that he will provide no matter what happens. He has a purpose, a plan, and he'll get us through it. So maybe you're Philip this morning. The good news is, if you are, God can transform you. God can slowly take that worry from you and turn your eyes back to Christ. We don't worry about the future. You don't worry about the relationships. You don't worry about the things that happen because you know God's got you in his hands and he's not gonna drop you he's not going to let you go. He's going to hold on to you and love you and care for you. And isn't that encouraging? I'm glad that Philip's in the Bible because I can learn a lot from him. I'm hoping you can too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, you don't, you don't hide the messy parts in the Bible of men's lives. 
but you also show us their transformation. Lord, you show us that it took a while for them to be changed, and that's encouraging because we know that we're kind of a work in progress too. I pray this morning that if we are like a Philip, we see the problems, we stress, we worry, and it does us no good except gives us white hair, we pray that you would transform us into men and women of faith, men and women who know that we are held in your palms and cared for and loved and watched over and protected and filled with the Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you have us and our future in a safe, secure place, and you will care for us. We thank you for your love, your grace, and we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.